the penny farthing became the modern bicycle. Because oftentimes people think, well, of course, right? Because all we have left is the modern bicycle, that that must have been what happened. But the story is actually a lot more nuanced than that. There were actually like six or seven different bike models that we could have gone down the path of. But it turns out because of the way, you know, England was at the time, this particular bicycle that we now think of when we think of a bicycle is the one that won out. In a lot of ways, technology is the same way, right? You know, taking that multimedia PC, for example, right? there's a thousand different ways, more than a thousand different ways that this technology could have happened. But as people do, we make decisions based on our needs and wants of the moment. And that kind of ended up selecting for some, not selecting for others. And, and now we kind of have, you know, the landscape we have now. And of course, going forward too, it's going to be the same story. You know, think of all the emerging technologies that we have. They're not all going to be with us, you know, 20, 30 years from now. And we, we can't really tell which ones are going to win. I mean, we can bet on it, right? We can, we can kind of have hunches. But ultimately, it's going to come down to the same thing where we are, as people are making decisions that make sense for us in that moment based on the criteria that we have to move forward on. Right? That always kind of makes technology interesting to me, right? Because you get to kind of play with a lot of different toys and then sometimes toys kind of fade away and sometimes new toys come in to take their place. Right? So there's always this you know, excitingly changing landscape. Brian Callahan. Brian is a lecturer at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and an OpenBSD developer. Brian, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Sure. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I figure a good place to start is at the beginning. Were you always interested in technology when you were younger? Was this something that you thought this is what I want to do with my life? Well, no, I guess <laughs> that's the easy answer is no. So if you would ask me, you know, at the ripe old age of 17, 18, as I was finishing high school, beginning college, uh, what would my career look like? I would say to you, well, I would try really hard to win an audition for like a top tier orchestra somewhere in in the world. Um, I was actually on a path for music performance. Really? I actually went to a special high school, Manhattan School of Music. Uh, at the time, it was called the preparatory school. I think now they call it the pre-college um, in New York City. And yeah, I went to to undergrad for music performance. Now, it helped maybe a little bit that I went to undergrad for music performance at Carnegie Mellon, which also I hear is kind of a good tech school. And so you're kind of surrounded by tech people. Um, I've heard, often. yeah, I've heard it's a good school. Yeah, yeah, it's funny how that works out. <laughs> and so I ended up kind of, I think maybe leaning into an interest that was kind of laid dormant for a lot of the time growing up. So right, I was always kind of, you know, the technically savvy kid growing up, you know, I knew the stuff about the computers that everybody mm -hmm. else, you know, in the, the 90s and early 2000s were still quite confused about. Um, and But it wasn't really until college until I kind of got embedded in it a little more deeply. And I still did not major in, in tech at all. Um, it was only kind of after I ended up in graduate school that I kind of realized that this was a thing that I might want to consider pursuing full time. So it took me it took me a while to get to actually doing, you know, computers and tech and IT full time. Okay. So 
couple questions real quick. One, what instrument was your preference? So I am a bassoonist and contrabassoonist. Okay, nice. And then what did you graduate undergrad with? What was your degree? Yeah, so I got a dual degree from CMU in music performance and anthropology. One of the other things that I had learned that I had a real love for in college was social sciences. And so I ended up doing work um, to dual major in both. I ended up going for my master's degree in anthropology. um, And I had learned something very interesting at my time in my master's program. Uh, well, two two big things happened. One is during that time, I actually got my invitation to open BSD. And then I realized, oh, you could do anthropology, but about tech people. I wonder if there's a school that will let me pursue that interest. And it just turned out that I had a professor who said, oh, you're, you want to do what we call science and technology studies. And there's this place in upstate New York called Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute that has a really good PhD program in science and technology studies. And so I applied there, got in there, I went there, completed my, you know, my PhD there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, another department in another school kind of totally detached from where I was, you know, said to themselves, well, we do inter- interdisciplinary science, particularly information technology. We, we want and need somebody like you. So why don't you come over here and and become a professor. And I, I said, yes, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've had conversations with people about technology and it seems like we the conversations that I've had have been strictly about like the historical aspect of it and that there doesn't actually seem to be many people who are really making an effort to document a lot of that early history. It's just kind of being lost as people, you know, move on and pass away. And there's kind of that era of information that some people still know, but the number of people that know it is dwindling more and more. And I I don't think I've ever thought about the aspect, like the sociological aspect of, you know, that kind of early era of technology and the type of people that were attracted to it and, you know, how they how they work together and how they actually developed anything. Yeah, so there is um, actually some good work out there, um, but you kind of have to know where to go look to find it. So like the classic book that comes to mind immediately is Levy's book, uh, Hackers. It's from 1985, I think, or before, somewhere between 84 and 85, which is, you know, designed to be kind of a systematic look at how did, you know, computers begin really developing the hacker mindset at MIT in the 60s. -hmm. How did that move us into the microcomputer revolution, particularly on the West Coast? And then what is happening now? Remember, it's like, you know, early 80s, you know, this is kind of the rise of, you know, the GNU project. And then the book kind of stops right at the founding of the GNU project. Um, So it does kind of take you right up into the the cusp maybe of what we tend to think today of as the modern free software, modern open source movement. So that's a really nice book. um, If you're looking to kind of get your feet wet in how are people thinking about documenting these early histories of of tech? Um, Yeah, I would love to do like an oral history of, you know, people who have been around forever. um, But it costs a lot of money to do those things. So I got to, you know, put in for more grant money uh, to do that stuff. But you know, that's always kind of been a dream of mine. And hopefully one day I can actually, you know, get the ability to, to do it. Well, I hope so, because you have at least one person that I can guarantee will enjoy it. <laughs> Last year, I did an interview with uh, John Mad Dog Hall, 
when I was I initially approached him about, you know, doing an interview, there was a few points that I kind of wanted to touch on. And then when we actually sat down to do the interview, I was like, FYI, if you want to talk about anything, like you have an open, open mic, just like go for it. I am not going to interrupt because there's so much that you've seen and experienced that I don't know about. You'll, you'll know things that will be interesting that I don't even realize are something I could ask. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, that, then that's the thing, right? So, you know, we want to do these oral histories for exactly this reason, you know, because at some point they won't be around to tell those stories and it's better to have a recording somewhere from their own mouth than, you know, that game of telephone that we all unfortunately end up playing. And then the story changes a little bit. And maybe in that first time you tell the story, that little change doesn't make a difference. But, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the line, the story doesn't even, you know, even closely resemble, you know, the actual thing that actually happened. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, I think that that's a really interesting thing that we might want to, you know, as a whole, you know, really consider doing. Right, and there's lots of documentaries out there, too, um, right, kind of documenting stuff. You know, a great thing that people don't think about often enough um, is the Computer Chronicles, that whole like PBS series that really just documents, you know, what was not just the public perception of tech, but, you know, what was the tech that people could actually get their hands on when they walked into a store and how that kind of grew and grew American life and American life then also helped grow computers as well. So there is stuff out there, but maybe kind of the next project is, okay, how do we synthesize this stuff together to tell kind of a more rich and complete narrative of who we were as people in the early days of computing and how do those people, how do we see those people in ourselves today in the 21st century as right tech people, you know, doing the things that we do today? Because of course, you know, you know, look at me, right? Someone who is teaching courses on, you know, web development, web science, stuff on big data, stuff on information security. You know, this is not stuff that existed you know, 20, 30 years ago. And, but even so those people, right, are still reflected in the activities that we do, right? And so having, you know, easily accessible, very rich histories would, I think, go a long way in helping to remind us where we came from and, and using their lessons as we move forward in the world. Yeah, Computer Chronicles is really an interesting thing to watch because not only do you just get just like the the bland, you know, kind of, and maybe isn't the best word for it, but the simple history of like, you know, this came out then and what this computer that they were going to be talking about and this company was developing this product. But if you actually stop and think, like you, you come to some f fun realizations that even though I grew up in the 80s and 90s, I didn't really recall until I actually saw some of those episodes. Like there was one that I remember distinctly where they were talking about, you know, multimedia PCs because this was the new thing. And they had several companies on to talk about their products. And it was interesting to see how each of the different companies, what they thought the future was going to be, which was, of course, not what anything happened. All of them were wrong. You know, the thought was you were going to have a whole computer that was just going to play music, not that mm -hmm. was going to be something you did with every computer device you owned. No, you were going to have a whole computer just for music. Yeah. And the other really neat thing is, too, like, you know, going off of that is it gave us a look into what people, like you said, thought technology was going to be, which is actually a really great insight that, you know, is kind of one of the, the basic tenets of STS writ large, which is about how, you know, 
there is no predestiny to our technology. The technology that we have is a result of people making decisions along the way to best suit whatever their goals were, you know, in those moments, right, as they were making the decision of what to pick, um, right? This very famous article um, about the development of the bicycle, which you might think, who cares about bikes, right? It's about how the penny farthing became the modern bicycle, because oftentimes people think, well, of course, right? Because all we have left is the modern bicycle, that that must have been what happened. But the story is actually a lot more nuanced than that. There were actually like six or seven different bike models that we could have gone down the path of, but it turns out because of the way you know England was at the time, this particular bicycle that we now think of when we think of a bicycle is the one that won out. In a lot of ways, technology is the same way, right? You know, taking that multimedia PC for example, right? there's a thousand different ways, more than a thousand different ways that this technology could have happened. But as people do, we make decisions based on our needs and wants of the moment, and that kind of ended up selecting for some, not selecting for others. And, and now we kind of have, you know, the landscape we have now. And of course, going forward too, it's going to be the same story. You know, think of all the emerging technologies that we have. They're not all going to be with us, you know, 20, 30 years from now. And we, we can't really tell which ones are going to win. I mean, we can bet on it, right? We can, we can kind of have hunches, but ultimately it's going to come down to the same thing where we are, as people are making decisions that make sense for us in that moment based on the criteria that we have to move forward on, right? That always kind of makes technology interesting to me, right? Because you get to kind of play with a lot of different toys and then sometimes toys kind of fade away and sometimes new toys come in to take their place, right? So there's always this, you know, excitingly changing landscape, which I think is what ended up keeping me in tech once I started, you know, to get my my feet wet in stuff. Um, and it's probably kind of kind of spurred on, you know, all the enjoyment I have you know, in my current career being an IT professor. So, okay, so digging into your personal history a little more, when were you first introduced to open source, the concept of open source software? Yeah, so I guess formally when I was in college, but I had known about open source probably around the turn of the millennium. Um, so when I was a teenager, I'd gotten, you know, a laptop and... It was a laptop that, you know, this is really going to date the actual machine itself. It was new enough that Windows 98 SE was the operating system that it came with because it technically postdated Windows 2000, but predated Windows XP. And since it was the home laptop, since XP wasn't out yet, they gave you Windows 98 SE, right? So that kind of tells you how old uh, that machine was. But um, I remember, I think somewhere in the internet, I couldn't tell you where, having discovered that Linux was a thing. And of course, this is like 1999 Linux and right, still the age of like dial-up modem. So I have a memory of, of being young and tying up a phone line literally for an entire night to download an ISO of a Linux distro like over the phone line and doing it at night where like obviously nobody would call, call the house. Um, and it totally didn't work, but, you know, that undoubtedly is partly my own fault for it not working. I'm sure I just did not understand what in the world it was um, that I was doing. But then more formally, when I went to college, it's nice to being around people who did the tech thing every day. I was actually roommates with someone who was an electrical and computer engineer. And so, you know, 
I ended up kind of experiencing, you know, at least partly through him, kind of what open source was all about. I think that's when I finally took, you know, a real dive into doing something meaningful with it, um, which of course was to try to install Linux on that very same old laptop that I had, I brought with me to school. Of course, I had a better one for actual schoolwork, um, but I brought it with me because at CMU, they let you have your own IP addresses in the dorms that were publicly accessible. So you can just like host servers. I don't know if they still do that. In retrospect, that was nuts that they let us do that, but they did. And so I remember with that laptop, so it didn't have any like built-in networking. So I remember having to buy, you know, like a PC card that was like an Atheros chip. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember downloading a bunch of Linux distros and either the sound would work or the Wi-Fi would work, but not both. And I'm sure that's partly my fault too. You know, I'm sure... You know, I, I have some blame in that. Um, but it's actually how I ended up finding the BSDs because I ended up, you know, probably searching something for like free operating system, not Linux and free BSD popped up. And I'm probably the only one in the world who is like, I chose free BSD because it had better hardware support. But sure enough, it supported the Wi-Fi and the audio. And so I was like, all right, I guess this seems to be basically the same thing. So I might as well just use this because it makes all the hardware work. And then, right, I started to get into it and actually you know, learn a whole bunch about about everything as the years went on. No, I don't think it was you for the Wi-Fi audio, because that was a common thing with Linux back in the day, where it seemed that, like, the drivers that the distro chose to compile into the kernel when they shipped it was always this weird mix that didn't match what people actually had, because I know that happened with me a couple times. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Just I guess <laughs> I guess just luck happened. We were talking earlier about decisions that people made, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, they made a decision that then, you know, helped guide you towards the BSDs. So then you used FreeBSD. How did you then end up in the OpenBSD world? So I was using, I don't know, I think it was like 6.1 was my first FreeBSD that I ever used. That was like 05, somewhere in that ballpark. And I think it was like 2009, 2010, there was that like you know, somewhat famous uh, MIPS laptop that was supposed to be entirely free software from top to bottom. And I was like, well, let's go see what that's all about. Let's buy. I mean, they were cheap. They were like less than 500 bucks. So I was like, let's buy one. You know, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I'm not out a ton of money if it's a terrible laptop. So I bought it. And I don't remember what version of Linux or what distro came on it, but it would constantly crash for me. Like I would look, I think it had Firefox on it. Firefox would come up. I would use it for like, five minutes or so and I get a kernel crash. So I thought to myself, all right, well, let's try FreeBSD. Let's see if they have anything. Of course, they did not have anything for, for it. But sure enough, OpenBSD had, they. I think Mio had like just finished the port to that hardware. And so I was like, all right, I kind of already know what the BSDs are. I mean, I was, you know, somewhat familiar about the existence of OpenBSD. So I figured how different could it possibly be from FreeBSD? Haha, uh -huh. in retrospect, that's very funny. <laughs> but I was like, all right, let's try it. So I tried it. Sure enough, it worked amazingly. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm just going to hang out here. And then I guess as things happened, the more I used OpenBSD, and at this point, I'd had, you know, several years at this point actually using Unix and kind of knowing something about it and having taken a couple of courses at, at CMU to kind of, you know, get me in on the ground floor. I was like, well, these things annoy me. Let me fix those things. And, oh, look, there's software out there that 
aren't available in the port system. Let me do that thing and make it a port and send it in, and then I can have that thing. And I guess once I started, the momentum just kind of took me as it as it would, and I have been here ever since. So that was the next question I was going to ask was, what was like the first project or whatever that you contributed to? So it was oh, OpenBSD yeah, ports? I, I 100% know this. So actually, I wrote a blog post about this on my blog about a month or two ago. It was a game. The game is called Beret. It is like... The best way to describe it is if someone wanted to write, you know, the quintessential 90s platformer for the PC, but in 2012, we probably have made that game. All right. <laughs> and I remember somebody on, I must have been ports. It had to be one of the lists. So it had to be ports had said, hey, this guy made this game. He just recently open sourced it. I'm running OpenBSD. Anybody want to give it a shot at porting it? And I thought to myself, I'm not doing anything important with myself right now. Let's go figure out how this porting thing works and let's do it. And of course, um, I did it entirely incorrectly. So I learned a lot of good lessons from that first one. Most notably, um, pick the fastest machine you have to compile software, not the slowest one. Because it turns out a faster machine compiles faster. Who knew? Things that I learned along the way. Um, And so, you know... I cannot find the very, very first thing because it was a link to a tarball that was being hosted on a server that doesn't exist anymore. So the earliest thing I have is like the second iteration of that port. Um, I guess Stuart Henderson, uh, S-T-H-E-N at OpenBS, he was probably, I think was the one who was giving me feedback. In fact, I'm nearly 100% positive it was him. And so I kind of worked on that for a bit, not really knowing what to do. Somehow it got to a point where it was good enough to be imported and this was important. And I said to myself, great, my career developing for any open source thing is over. I have my name, you know, somewhere buried in an open source project. I'm done. And of course, it never really ends up that way. Nope. So, you know, within a week or two, I had something else I wanted to port. And then there was a port I was using that had no maintainer. And then the next thing, and then the next thing. And before I knew it, about a year after that initial port, I got an email from Landry asking me uh, if I would like to have an account. And that was in early 2013. And so I said yes, apparently. (laughs) And then I think I have like 2,500 commits at this point, like 2,500 commits later. Wow. I'm still going strong. Mostly in (laughs) ports. Yeah, it's always that, like, you know, it's the pebbles, you know, a few pebbles can start an avalanche and you don't realize it at yeah. first, but it, it really does work that way. And the crazy part is that eventually people turn to you and be like, Hey, can you teach me about this thing? And then you go, you say to yourself, I don't know a whole lot about this thing. What are you talking about? And they say, well, you have an account. Yeah. But that does that really mean I know what I'm doing. It just means, you know, I've been able to fool, you know, the people who, you know, actually control that thing. Not that I actually know what I'm, I mean, I, I accept at this point that I obviously must know uh, what I'm talking about, but the first few times, that that happened, we're really like, wait, what? <laughs> you you think I know what I'm doing? I'm just kind of making it up as I go. But uh, no, now nowadays, you know, I take that quite seriously. I'm happy to help people, mm-hmm. you know, with the time that I have, you know, if they want to get involved in OpenBSD stuff. So speaking of OpenBSD and ports, we had you on BSD Now recently uh, to talk about languages that you have ported. Um, you've I know you've ported the J language. You've ported the D language. The obvious question is, are you just working through the whole alphabet? Are you going to get them all? Well, the good news is C was already taken care of for me. It's already in base. 
Um, but yeah, more or less, you know, I, I think at this point, the num not all of them are in ports, but I think at this point, somewhere between like 40 and 50 languages I've, I've worked on porting. You know, some were a lot more work than others. A lot are actually far more straightforward than you would think they are, right? Because they tend to only have, you know, a single implementation. You know, it's not a language with a massive ecosystem like C or Java or Rust or, you know, any of the uh, Python, right, all that stuff. Um, and usually those smaller, smaller languages, you have people who are, like, willing to, like, take whatever you will give them. Like, the idea that someone is using their compiler or their interpreter and actually using this language um, is usually more than enough to get them really excited about, you know, accepting your contributions. Um, but, you know, although I, you know, I, I joke that I say that, you know, C was already taken care of, but I ported a C compiler that's in ports. Um, it's the tiny C compiler, TCC. Um, I've ported some other C compilers that are not in ports. Um, I, I enjoy, it's going to sound weird to say, I enjoy working and porting compilers um, because I really enjoy the many different ways that people have come up with to express their ideas. Mm -hmm. Just the thing is a reason that I, I like OpenBSD and the BSDs so much, right? These These are other ways that exist in the world that capture knowledge about how we can go about doing the work that we need to get done every day. And sometimes even doing other work that we don't need to do every day, but want to do it because it's fun. Um, and I see languages in quite the same way as well, right? There's all these different ways that we can express ourselves. And only a small subset of those have actually been captured in the form of an actual language with an actual implementation. And I think it's worthwhile to to have as many people as possible know what those captured expressions are. Not that they have to run out, you know, and become, you know, a D or a J or any other program of any other language. Uh, but right, I think there's something important and unique and special about the work that people have put in to capture these ways of thinking that is worth sharing and worth putting the time in to have as many people be able to share in it as possible. Um, so I kind of end up becoming this like very strange, like polyglot evangelist in ways that I don't even think makes sense as a phrase, but I'm going to make <laughs> it up anyway. Um, right. Cause for me, it's like, just get excited about, you know, whatever it is you're doing in open source. You know, I recently had an interview um, for the amateur radio stuff that I do from a, on a podcast called QSO today. And I basically ended that podcast. Cause I think the last question for me was like, you know, what's next? Like, what's your advice to to other amateur operators? And I was like, go out and just like, be excited about everything that you do, you know? And I always, I always share this kind of anecdote. I don't know if it's an anecdote, but like the way that I approach any sort of room that I enter in, right? You know, I walk into every room with the assumption that I am far and away the dumbest person in the room. And my job is simply to learn from all the much smarter people that are going to be here in this room. I even do that like when I'm in the classroom with my students, right? Not that I think I'm dumber than my students, obviously, but right, the idea is they too have things that they teach me and, you know, I teach them obviously, um, but I can also learn from them and grow from them. So right? I always take that approach. Whenever I'm in a room with anybody, it doesn't matter what, what the topic or, or the thing is, you know, my job is to be the dumb person, to learn everything that is available and being put in front of me. And then to find a way to synthesize that into whatever the next thing I'm going to do is, right? And there's a lot of things on my plate that I would like to do, um, 
But it turns out there's this thing called time and you only get so much of it. Yeah. It's, so I end it's up not doing everything that I want to do. Yeah. I have said before to people about conferences that I've gone to that I, I love when I walk in and I'm the dumbest person in the room. And people kind of always look at me weird like, wait, why? Why would you like that? It's like, are you kidding me? Why wouldn't I like that? It means every person in that room has something that I can learn and then leave the room smarter than when I went in. Like, that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. And that's why I like, you know, particularly BSD conferences, because every talk I go to, I walk away feeling like I might have gotten five to 10% of that, but I definitely feel smarter for having been there and engaged with that talk. <laughs> There's been a couple talks that I've gone to. Um, at, I don't know if I remember if it was at VBSDCon or at MeetBSD, but it was at one of them. And I remember sitting in the talk and the, whoever it was was up front and they were talking about whatever it was. I don't remember now. But I distinctly remember thinking to myself, I understood or I know every single word that he just said. I have no idea what he means. Like... <laughs> I know all those words, but I don't understand what he's talking about. And I later pulled them aside and, and we had a conversation. But on the C compiler thing, speaking of conferences, it reminds me of a few years back, I was at a conference and late in the evening, we were all sitting around, you know, eating food at the at the bar. And this, we came up with this dumb idea to try to come up with all the C compilers, like if we could name them all. And I don't, I don't remember how many we got through, but then one of the guys was just like, stop, there's always another one. Like, you're never going to list them all. <laughs> Yeah, prob probably true. <laughs> so I have to ask, is there, do you have a preferred language? Like, is there one or a few languages that you prefer working with over the multitude? Um, I don't know if I have a preferred one for my own projects. Although I think just because I've been so involved in the last couple of months, bringing the, all the decompilers online fully for OpenBSC, I've just been using a bunch of it. Um, in my own teaching, I tend to actually mostly end up teaching like C and assembly and then the web languages. Okay. I generally do not use the web languages from like my own personal stuff. Um, professionally, sure, right? That That's a different thing. Um, but personally, I actually still end up pretty much like using C, now D um, in some things. Um, you know, I, I try my best to use the best tool for the job, mm -hmm. you know, usually. Um, and also, right, just, you know, kind of the work that I do day in and day out, right? So a lot of stuff I do ends up being in make files and, you know, shell sometimes. And when you're porting software, you don't really get a choice about what language you end up working in, right? It has to be whatever that particular port is written in. Um, yeah, so right, I, I just kind of approach each problem that way, you know, thinking about what what the best thing, thing is. Um, but oftentimes nowadays at least left to my own devices i tend to just use d because i've just been kind of in the weeds with it lately i'm sure that will change at some point in time um but not quite yet because i'm still not quite done um finishing up all the things i want to with with its runtime environment so of the languages that you have brought to OpenBSD, is there one that stands out that it offers something unique that most people aren't aware of so the one that I am most interested in are actually the array languages. So that's APL, which I didn't port, although I imported. Somebody else kind of did more of the heavy lifting than I, I, I finished off the job. And J are the two that are the array languages that we have available. And we also have K. So there's um, the package is called Kona, K-O-N-A, but it's an open source version of K. And if I remember correctly, APL, J, and K, are one family of the the array languages from Iverson, and then I think there's another one. But 
I digress. I'm not a historian of, of the array languages. Um, I really like those languages, particularly APL, uh, because I'm still at the point where I look at, at the actual programs and I say to myself, I have no idea what in the world this program is trying to tell me. And then at the same token, in a single line of code, it has done like what 50 to 100 lines in other languages do. And it's incredible. Like I cannot wrap my head around these languages, but I have every intent to. Um, all right, and that's just like why, I guess for me, you know, also having been someone who um, kind of ended up learning CS's first language for like weirder start. Well, I guess Pascal really for my first language a long time ago when I was a kid. But like see my first language as an adult from some like weird hangovers from CMU, I think. Um, you know, the way they used to do teaching of uh, early CS courses. Um, I don't even know what the question was anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah, about APL and J and stuff. Right, so, sorry, we... When I think of programming, right, I still think of like that very, you know, procedural, imperative style that C and Pascal give you. And the array languages are just wild. They're just like, all right, the only data type you have are multidimensional arrays. Every operator you do is like some incredible transformation of this array. And they have single characters that represent, you know, function like entire functions that we would otherwise have to write out in other languages. And you can do like truly wild stuff in like a single line of code. So I have every every goal in life to, to master at least APL because um, it's just so different that I don't know, I'm, I'm excited about reading code in a language. I don't fully understand, but I'll get there someday, I think, hopefully, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, if I say like one that's like truly different, that those would be the languages that are truly different. And for me, kind of exciting to learn. Yeah, I'll have to look into that. I That sounds very, very interesting. So stepping back just a little bit, when you were talking about how people came to you to ask you questions to help them out so they could learn, are there specific people that pop into mind that helped you and kind of helped mold your views on open source and development? Oh, yeah. So, you know, the whole OpenBSD porting team, starting from Stuart on down, like, need to have, you know, all, like, the credit and thanks in the world far more than they actually get. Um, like, Stuart, Antoine... Jasper, Landry, you know, I'm, there's plenty of others that I'm forgetting off the top of my head uh, who just have, you know, Herculean efforts. Robert, um, you know, truly Herculean efforts to, you know, keep up to date a lot of software that we just take, you know, for granted every single day. Um, but then, kind of surprisingly, a lot of my other kind of big influences in the way I approach open source um, are actually people who are not open source people at all. Um, they're actually my PhD advisors, Mike and Kim Fortune, um, who shout outs to them. They'll probably never watch this, but, you know, I love them dearly anyhow, even though they won't watch this. Um, you know, they're, they're not open source tech people the way we would think of open source tech people. You know, they're academics and they're social science and humanities academics. And, you know, they have come to learn and appreciate the the humanitarian values of open source through their own work, through their own research that they do. Um, so just kind of very briefly talk about it. Um, it's called the Peace Project, P-E-C-E. -E. Um, the idea is we are creating open source collaborative software to allow social scientists, humanities, and other researchers as well, it doesn't have to just be social science and humanities, um, to share data in, in ways digitally that otherwise they don't have access to. Um, and kind of have a system that will allow them to kind of mix and match their data in ways that 
would be very difficult to do otherwise to help kind of you know bring new insights out of the data right if you can look at it differently maybe it it suggests certain patterns or certain you know results that you otherwise wouldn't see in kind of other you know more traditional like coding software and stuff like that um and sorry so they, they have come to have you know a real appreciation for you know all the power and well not just power but you know all the the affordances and benefits that open source has let us do it's let us turn this project into like a truly multinational thing where we have great developers who live in brazil we've gone to travel to different places to help other researchers set this stuff up all over the world um, and that stuff really could not be done without open source um, in a lot of ways and so kind of watching them really kind of you know not maybe 100% understand all the different nuances, right? That is why they have me around after all anyway, to know those nuances for them. Um, but really appreciate the fact that through this way of thinking and kind of through this social phenomenon, we too are able to get our voices out to people who otherwise we wouldn't be able to. Um, has been really nice to see and kind of, you know, has given me, I don't know if it's hope for the future, probably not, but at least, uh, you know, appreciation for the fact that the stuff that I do isn't just behind closed doors, isn't just a thing that, you know, somebody might see once or twice and then never look on it again. It's actually this living thing that we're all kind of involved in in some way and, and making changes to the world in some way through our involvement with open source. Yeah, something that I've, I've always thought for, well, maybe I shouldn't say always, <laughs> but I've thought for quite a while, let's put it that way. Um, is that for me, open source is really just a continuation of, you know, the scientific revolution from the Renaissance on. Because if you look before that, science and research was very closed. Individual people were doing their own research. They weren't sharing it. They weren't working with others. But once we actually, once in history, people started actually opening that up and sharing their data and sharing their research and sharing their results. I mean, we have the modern world around us because of people working together openly collaborating, sharing their data, and standing on top of the shoulders of the people that came before them. And when I look at open source, I see well, this is the same thing, that when I write a program, well, the only reason I can even write that program on my system is because I have a system that works, and because I have people who have written the OS and have written the libraries and have written the compilers, and they weren't doing that to help me. They were doing it because they enjoyed it and they knew it would be helpful. And so it was put out there and now I can take advantage of that and everyone else can take advantage of that as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's kind of, you know, that realization that maybe our team, our peace team has had with the software that, that we have been making, right. You know, I mean, yes, we, we did it for ourselves because it solved the need that we had with our own research. Um, but a lot of people have taken it in directions that, you know, I would never have thought of. Right. So we have people who are using this software to do well, the project's over now, but there was a Japanese oral history project that used the software. There's a project about um, kind of collating like security vulnerabilities using the software. Um, yeah, and just like other stuff, you know, all over the world. And, you know, I'm constantly amazed that, you know, this kind of software that gives you, you know, the tools to do research in new ways, but then actually seeing what kind of research people actually put on this software and actually what kinds of, um, you know, results they draw from that um, has been really exciting. And and you're right, you know, they would not have been able to do that and we would not have been able to kind of enjoy 
all of their results without doing the work of, of open source. Um, and so, right, in, in a different way from OpenBSD, right, that has really kind of influenced the way I think about it and interact with, you know, my own open source stuff kind of, you know, at large as well. So on the point of realizations, I want to shift gears a little bit to a different topic, security, because you teach security at Rensselaer, correct? Yes, I do. Okay, so security is, is uh, wow, it's a big, big topic with a lot of, lot of minefields and lots of pitfalls. And my question is, do you think we will ever get to the point where the wider industry realizes, hey, the security thing is actually kind of important because it seems like we're stuck to be cursed with this mix of it's not a big deal or let's just look like we care. <laughs> um, huh. So I think we're in a better position today than we have been in years past. And I don't think that's something to like, scoff over right mm -hmm. sure we still have a long way to go no arguments there whatsoever uh, but it's not the same place that we were in in 99 89 79 right it's a very kind of different landscape i can't tell you what companies are going to do next right i wish i could because then i tell you what stocks <laughs> to buy well i would tell myself what stocks to buy first and then i would tell you afterwards um, but just seeing my own students, I it gives me hope that the next generation understands security maybe in in ways that we couldn't because we didn't have the same kind of tools, we didn't have the same kind of experiences, and we just didn't live in the same kind of world 10, 20, 30 years ago that that they live in now. You know, I I am constantly very reassured by both kind of the seriousness that my security students take to all the different topics that we learn, uh, but also like they're just sheer humanity in in approaching and learning about security. So there's a, a really nice story. So I told this in a um, a talk I gave at Colorado Boulder a couple of weeks ago um, in my current security class. Um, so it's kind of like um, it's a class to train them to take their ISC squared SSCP exams plus. Right. So I always go beyond just what the exam um, has them do, and so. There's one chapter in the, the official textbook, which we use, about malware and all the different kinds of malware and, and you know, how to, how to approach with, deal with, identify, contain, et cetera, malware. And so for the thing that we were going to do beyond the textbook for that week, I wanted to actually do some malware analysis. You know, like nothing, you know, crazy, you know, introductory malware to analysis, uh, introductory malware analysis stuff. And so I had them all set up a VM, a Windows VM. I had them, you know, lock it down so it would be safe to use. And so I was like, all right, we're going to install some, like, malware on the system so that we can, you know, do, like, the classic task of just, like, looking at what malware does, taking notes on it, right? And then I was going to show them other things like any run and things like that. So I would just show them, you know, there are cloud services that that do all the scary stuff for us. But, you know, let's, have, let's you know, get our hands wet or feet wet, you know, doing the classic thing. And the one thing I forgot to tell them is that they needed to turn off Windows Defender on the VM. Because if they don't, Windows Defender will pop up and be like, I know what you're doing. You're about to run a piece of malware, knock it off. And so, of course, I forgot to tell them that. So we get to the point where they have the malware downloaded on their machines. They go to run it. Windows Defender pops up. And they panic. Like, sheer panic. <laughs> and most of them, like, 
stop the VM immediately. And some of them even just destroy the VM outright. So they couldn't even go on and like finish the rest of the in-class stuff we were going to do together because they just destroyed the VM that we were going to use in class to work on stuff. Uh, but I say that in a very hopeful manner because I'm not sure how many people would have panicked in quite that same way, and quite rightfully so, if it wasn't for it being a lockdown VM, right? How many people would have just ignored it or just not realized that that's a thing that they should be aware about, where they all kind of very innately just realized, oh, something bad is going to happen. Even though the professor is right there, he's definitely going to hold our hands through this thing and make sure nothing bad happens, right? That That reaction was still there. So that actually kind of leaves me hopeful that we might be in a better place for the future, at least in terms of like everyday security awareness, maybe not, you know, security awareness for large enterprises, for governments, right? Definitely not talking about things like cyber warfare, which I usually don't talk about in my classes. Um, so in some ways, I think that there's, there's good room to be hopeful. In other realms, you're definitely right. So I, had a, I have a student in that class and she had an internship I couldn't tell you right now because I don't want to tell you. I just don't remember. It's been a while since she told me where it was. Um, but if I remember correctly, she was working on IoT devices. And I I think, not to be mean, I just asked her because it's like the first mm -hmm. class. I said, I said, you know, was this one of those IoT devices where the company was like, let's get to market and therefore ignore security? Or did they like bake some security stuff into the product? And she's like, no, we just kind of cut corners and you know, didn't do the security thing. I don't want to put, you know, too many words in her mouth in case she watches this. But um, that's kind of what I remember from the talk, which is kind of, you know, not out of line from what I hear from other people um, who I know who are doing IoT stuff. So I think there is still a lot of good work to be done. I think seeing my students and how they very humanly react to security issues these days gives me hope that they will carry that forward with them, at least partly, when they go into right, their work lives, and then hopefully when they become the project managers, etc., they can say, hey, I remember this time in Dr. Callahan's class where I panicked, you know, about the security thing, even though he was right there to help us. I don't want my customers to also have that same experience where I can, you know, prevent that from happening. Even if it means, you know, being a day late to time to market, this is probably worth our while. So I'm going to remain hopeful. They they are welcome to disabuse me of that notion as early as Thursday when I see them again. But, you know, decades down the line when I see them, you know, not following all the, the good lessons that I taught them in class. So they have lots of different places uh, in life that they can disabuse me of my hopefulness. So I've I've wondered if it is a sort of a generational thing. And I don't mean that like in the classic, you know, boomers, X, millennials generations, but sort of like the, the phases of IT because IT develops so fast and tech develops so fast that, you know, five years, things can be completely different. Because like I know devs to this day that when anytime, you know, a security discussion comes up, it's like there's just no care given whatsoever. And I've never really been able to figure out like, is it is it just laziness? Is it you just really don't care? Or is it kind of the, well, it's not my problem, it's somebody else's problem who's running the software. And I guess knowing that that goes up and that you're going to get that in kind of the program management and, you know, the executive level at companies, you know, I always worry about like, when are we going to turn the corner that we can then actually start to take it seriously to where we realize that 
security is a core issue because it seems that for a lot of places right now, it's it's sort of kind of pushed out at arm's length as, well, yeah, it's not really my problem. Yeah, I mean, for us at least, I can only talk about our little department mm-hmm. um, up in upstate New York. You know, we, we pretty much hammer security and its importantness in their first semester class as majors here at RPI. And I know that because I'm the one who does the guest lecture in the intro class to tell them about them taking security seriously, right? And even in my web development courses, I always find, you know, spaces and places to to talk about, you know, okay, well, you can do security quite wrong right here, and this would be the ramifications. Um, you know, it's never as much as I would like it to be, but I think for us at least, because all of those students are forced to be around somebody who they know takes security very, very seriously, um, you know, that kind of rubs off on them in a lot of ways. And so, you know, when I took over, well, I guess when I started, I'd taken over all the information security stuff pretty much right away. And I had like six students total. And that's a long history behind why that was. We probably have closer to like 18, 20 students now. So in two and a half years, I've managed to like triple the size of the students in a, in a department that's like 250 students total. So we're not, you know, we're never going to be the biggest part of ITWS. It's just kind of the reality of that department. Um, but we are, are growing. And even for those who are not information security students, every single one of them has to take a year with me. Because all the sophomores, I teach all the sophomore courses. That's the web development courses. So they have to spend a year with me. They have to be in proximity for that time with somebody who they know for a fact cares a lot about security. And so you hear them talk, you know, I will hear them talk even when they don't think I'm listening about security. And so just having somebody around, I think, who who says this is a real thing, this is serious, it doesn't have to be, you know, your area of expertise, but it does have to be something that you're aware of. It does have to be something that you can speak at least mildly cogent about. And it is a skill set that would be useful to you going forward if you would like to take any of my information security classes. And some of them always inevitably, you know, even if they're not information security students, end up taking my, my classes. Um, and then they get exposed to it more, and then they talk about it more. And then right, it just kind of becomes a part of the things we do include security because the way that I have been taught is a way that includes security. Now, they still may go off into the business world and be told they can't do that, and that's fine. Uh, but hopefully that causes at least some sort of internal conflict that they remember when they become, right, the PMs, the CEOs, and, and everything else, that maybe they do something different. And I know that's kind of like a gamble for what is a long-term payoff, but, you know, I'm not particularly hopeful that as one person I can suddenly, like, change the way the earth spins, you know? I can't do that, but, you know, perhaps I can chip away at our future a little bit, and I'm pretty good at doing that. Well, that's good. And I should add to the the list I said before that in conversation with each other, I do know that sometimes people kind of come away after spending a lot of time in the industry as kind of a fatalistic view of it. I mean, when you have things like Spectre and Meltdown, or even more so with something like Rowhammer, like I, like I remember when that came out, I remember thinking to myself like, oh, come on. Like you've effectively just weaponized quantum mechanics. What am I supposed to do about that? Yeah, you know, there is that whole, you know, it's always a question of when, not if, right? right? You know, definitely say that. 
you know, to students, um, you know, but I, I remain hopeful with my students. You know, it seems like, you know, I don't know if, you know, they fully have an awareness of kind of what the security world is like, not because they don't want to, just because they're still in school. They're not out in, you know, industry yet. Um, but I am kind of constantly reminded from them day in and day out, you know, like I said, kind of how seriously they take to the subject ma matter and, and how much it seems that they really kind of are willing to to kind of face the challenges that are ahead of them, you know, head on. And that, you know, that that does keep my my hopes up that at least, you know, the small little little bit that I'm chipping away at may actually bear some fruit. OK, so let, let's stay hopeful. Let's stay positive. And on that kind of trajectory of being hopeful, what are some things that you see being developed? or projects that are getting a lot of work in or being improved that you get really excited about? <laughs> All right. So uh, how much time do we have for this uh, interview? <laughs> I don't have anything else to do tonight. So you got as much time as you want. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, well, there's a lot of things. So for one, you know, I always remain unreasonably excited about all the things that the BSD projects are doing. You know, I, you know, I have no belief that, you know, we have a future in the sense that like we will become, you know, the next world's big operating system. And we don't have to be. The stuff that people are doing day in and day out in the BSDs is exciting. Um, full stop. Right. And so we have, New architecture is being spun up, right? You know, everyone is getting ARM v5 spun up for production. You know, everyone is working hard on the ARM platforms. You know, I think about like all the work the NetBSD team has been doing on, on ARM stuff as well. You know, I am kind of constantly excited about what the OpenBSD team is going to do next in terms of security stuff, right? You know, I still talk and teach about things like pledge and retguard in my classes because you know those are technologies that are awesome they solve real problems they solve real problems in a way that you know my students even you know not my students even you know my students are very smart all right but my students can you know kind of understand what the problem domain was why these solutions were chosen what do they gain by using these solutions type thing so i'm really excited about that um, I'm really excited about um, kind of in the amateur radio space, um, the development of um, open source protocols that can maybe help begin to replace some of the proprietary ones. So there's this protocol called M17. Um, I guess it's the name of the protocol and the name of the project, um, which is attempting to kind of come up with a comprehensive suite of radio communication protocols that will replace a lot of the proprietary ones that are kind of in use today in the digital space. I've even been helping out, well, not helping out directly with M17, but I have been publishing on new protocols for the radio space. Um, so I'm kind of constantly um, excited about that. Um, I'm excited to see where all these languages that I have been helping to port to OpenBSD are coming, right? So, you know, I'm always reading change logs for like the D language. I'm always reading change logs for every other compiler and interpreter. Um, like on my laundry list of 50, um, right? I'm always interested in seeing kind of where that stuff goes. I'm kind of optimistic, and this is going to sound like a strange answer to a technology, um, but I'm really optimistic of the future of the academy. 
um, which like we don't always think about as a technology, but in fact, you know, it is a technology um, and kind of how um, we can kind of, re well, revolutionize, revolutionize our knowledge in one hand, but, you know, being able to just talk to more people and get knowledge out in a way um, that is able to kind of quicker, more quickly get to the average person, right? You know, so, you know, not to like, suddenly spark your your podcast with uh, anti-vax haters and stuff but right kind of the work that the the community the scientific community has done to kind of ramp up understanding and execution of technologies to fight novel viruses in record time is really hopeful and inspiring about kind of the way that we can accelerate and leverage speed with science and technology to meet a lot of the challenges that we're going to have in the 21st century Right, so I'm really excited about stuff like that. Uh, other things on my list that I'm I'm really excited about. Um, we're, so also with the academy as well. You know, I'm really excited with how um, the way we the, we bring education to people is you know changing. You know, I don't think we should all. Well, I say this with a little bit of, of personal skin in the game, but you know, I don't think everything in the world is going to become online only. But I think there is a very proven location for online only remote education that we need to foster and refine and learn from and take experience for it and figure out kind of what is the right balance between a remote education and an in-person education. One that does work for the majority of our students instead of, of one that ends up kind of being a choice over the other, which is kind of how a lot of these programs end up being today. Um, I think there must be something kind of in the middle that that works for everybody that gives that in-person kind of direct feedback from faculty and also gives the convenience of, well, what happens when we need to be remote for, you know, insert whatever reason here. Um, so I'm hopeful for that. Um, I'm also, you know, just this past weekend, I was the judge for um, RPI's annual hackathon, and I'm always you know, super excited about the stuff that our students make, you know, not just my students at RPI, but, you know, students in general, you know, they see problems in ways that we simply never will just having, you know, unfortunately for us, um, age and experience and, and lessons that we have kind of learned, uh, both hard fought lessons and, you know, accidental lessons that kind of blind us to solutions that, you know, these younger students just see because they don't have those biases kind of moving them away from seeing problems in different ways, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, the people you're talking about with security, you know, kind of that kind of rigid, you know, approach to security problems. And they don't have that, you know, so I'm really interested in seeing what kind of things they'll invent, um, both at their time here at RPI. And then when they leave, you know, I always tell students, um, particularly my students, that when they leave RPI and they go out, and they become like famous business people, like not to forget that your professors don't make all the money in the world. And, you know, not saying that like you should hire us to be on your C-suite or like a director of your company, but I wouldn't say no if you did. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, you know, it's kind of the same way that I ended that, that talk, you know, with the, the amateur radio um, interview is I don't think there's anything that doesn't excite me. I think maybe the one thing that I, I do worry about is 
kind of as humans, like, you know, we have options to use technologies in different ways. And, you know, I always try to push my students towards how do we think about technologies to build people up? But right, you know, it is easy to watch the news and and see how people are thinking about technologies, you know, to knock people down. And so, right, at least in some small way, you know, I, I hope that I'm able to kind of fight off that that potential malaise about, you know, the downsides of, of technology. You know, not that I think technology is going to save the world. I think humans, we are the ones that have to save the world, but maybe technology can help. Um, but that's not to say that technology can't help and technology cannot, you know, do lots of things that will make us rise into those difficult challenges that we have ahead at least not as difficult as it could be still will be difficult, but you know, at least it can be made not as difficult. And so, right. I, I try to kind of foster that view of technology in my students so they can go off and solve all those really difficult problems. Cause I'm not <laughs> smart enough to, but maybe some of them are. So on the Academy front, do you think that in time we will see more development along the line or maybe not development, but well, maybe development in use Along the lines of like uh, open courseware and edX, I'm really kind of hopeful for that. And so, I didn't get to do it this time around, but I'm hoping in the future um, I can begin to. Maybe they're not kind of online like edX or Coursera are, um, but educational opportunities that reach out into the community in ways that engage our students, right? So one thing I kind of have in mind for the future of, you know, our little information security wing of our little department um, is setting up a hub where local businesses can come to us, say, hey, we have security issues, um, and then have students actually be the ones right under my guidance to actually help them through that. And that's the thing that I want to think about, how do we turn that into an edX or a Coursera or things like that, right? You know. I'm only one person. I'm probably not the world's best professor. I'm sure there's a lot of better professors who are already doing the edX thing you can take formal classes from. Um, but now how do we bring that formal class and that formal theory to action? How do we make the edX of that kind of like practical, hands-on, you know, community-engaged learning? And that's kind of what I want to be thinking about going ahead in the future. Got to get that lab set up and got to get, you know, students in the field doing that first. Um, and then I, I want to turn my attention to, okay, now how do we make that kind of a broader experience that maybe can translate to to an edX or some other kind of internet style teaching? Yeah, because one of the benefits of the internet is, of course, it's it's not localized. You can be anywhere. So if you live in the middle of, you know, in the middle of nowhere in some small town in Montana, you still have the capability to learn the same things you would if you were going to an elite institution on the East Coast or, you know, somebody in South America who lives in a small town who's never going to have the ability to, you know, come to the U.S. for university, they can still learn, get all that education to be able to then make positive impacts in their community where they live. Yeah, absolutely. And like I was saying before, right, there, there's a balance here that, you know, I don't think we've all fully explored yet and haven't really found the right answer to. For some people, like the examples you gave, you know, online is, you know, the right answer. Um, but for those of us who do have the privilege to be able to kind of make that in-person journey, um, right, think about kind of what is that right balance. And I think part of it is why I'm thinking about, you know, translating that hands-on experience to an edX style thing. And that way, you know, maybe I'm not physically there with them, 
but they're still doing a hands-on thing, you know, which is tactile, which is actually engaging with other humans to solve the, you know, in this case, security problems that they have in a way that they can still be guided by some somebody on the internet who can, you know, as best he can catch them when they stumble, be the one who can help kind of mediate between student and and business and kind of the, the cases that I'm thinking of. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there's good place for all of that. Um, I just think it, it's a matter of all of us kind of figuring out what's the balance between all of that and for which student, right? Because each student's going to have, you know, a different place in that balance. That's right. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't think that the importance of hands-on learning can ever be understated. I know for myself, when I was younger and, and learning, a teacher could say something to me 15 times and I would just be like, what? But then like, do it once. They would, you know, sit me down, walk me through it once. And then I'm like, oh, I got this. I'm good. Yeah, it's one thing. So last year we had all online learning. And that was one of the things that I really struggled with because, you know, not that my classes are all hands-on stuff, right? Obviously we have to do lecture, do theory, all that good stuff. But there is, you know, and I think that's one of the things that kind of sets my little department apart. Um, I think probably one of the reasons that uh, we got ranked number one ITWS program in, in America is because we have a big hands-on component to everything that we do. And that was an extreme challenge, like particularly for the security courses, you know, in the flagship information security course, for example, um, we have a day where students don't get to leave until they have successfully pulled off a buffer overflow attack, right? So it's like a my first attack type thing, you know, but we all have, we all have to have our my first attack thing, right? And so doing that in a space where I could not be there to like tactilely watch them touch the keys of the keyboard and, and have them come to me and have me potentially, you know, point at a screen or type some keys in was in a lot of ways kind of frustratingly difficult. Obviously we had other important concerns to deal with. Um, but now that we're kind of back in the classroom, I realized just how much, not only did I miss that, that kind of tactileness, but also how important it was and how much the students really responded to it. Um, you know, now that we get to do all that stuff all over again. And so, you know, there is still, there are plenty of days that could be, you know, online, remote, we're going to do lecture, we're going to talk theory stuff. But then there are definitely other days where it's like, we need to be here, we need to be face to face, we need to be touching computers, we need to be pointing at screens, we need, you know, all that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so that part was kind of frustratingly difficult. What's the balance? I don't know. But kind of every semester I, I go through, I think I get a little bit closer. I don't know if that actually answered your initial question. It might not have, but yeah, that's, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> and I think I think really in a lot of ways, as a species, we haven't figured out distance learning. Like the history of our species has been hands on. This is how you do things. Like we're just now at the yeah. beginning of that okay, the person who's teaching me is really far away and can't actually interact with me. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, you know, part of that when we had to, you know, quickly switch was kind of like frustratingly difficult. If I had to do it again, I, I you know I would do it better than I did last time, I'm sure. Um, you know, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't say no, you know, blanket no to another online class, but it would need to have, you know, much more deep thought about how are we going to translate those tactile showing hands-on stuff to students? I haven't quite figured that part out. Well, if I figure it out, I'll uh, I'll let you know. 
Um, sounds, sounds like a plan. <laughs> so looking at open source, BSDs, Linux, kind of the, the wide gamut, are there things that you think we aren't focused on that we should be? I'm sure the, the answer to that is yes. Um, huh. You know, it's funny. You know, I, I talked a bit before about, you know, being really hopeful about, you know, what signs of the pandemic has taught us about being able to quickly organize, synthesize, and generate new knowledge to kind of solve the world's biggest problems. And I don't think this is an issue particularly with open source. Um, I think it's maybe a broader tech question, um, but it's a question of how do we slow down and where do we slow down to think about, are we producing the future that we want? Now, without question, the future that open source has given us is, you know, incalculably better than the future that we would have had without it. You know, I think, I don't, I don't think there, I think it'd be very difficult for you to convince me otherwise of that thought. But um, with that said, you know, with kind of the responsibility that open source is kind of ended up shouldering because of the future that it has helped steward, um, that perhaps we need to, to figure out ways to slow down at times and think about are all the technologies that we are developing, you know, truly the right future that we want to develop for ourselves? You know, and there's a lot of things that can fall into that category. You know, there, there's some, you know, easy, you know, haha finger pointing that we can make. I mean, I know like people like, for example, the pick on system D, I think it's a little unfair. Um, but, you know, I know people like to pick on that one. And I don't even think that that's particularly the problem that I'm thinking about. I think the problem that I'm thinking about is more along the lines of do things like cryptocurrency give a more equal outcome to people who can't participate? If not, how do we do that? Right? And that's just one, one example, right? You know, people have to pick on NFTs these days, right? That might also be a moment where we slow down and say, you know, do we need a technology that claims ownership of a digital object without the benefits of ownership as we like currently understand those benefits? If not, should we slow down to think about how we can make the system better? If we slow down, are we afraid if the answer we come up with is we shouldn't do it because it doesn't make sense. And, you know, it's kind of weird. And like, look at all these other inequalities that it may make along the way. Okay. You know, but then also think about things like, you know, how do military weapons and the future of war get implicated in the technologies that we're doing? How do we meaningfully deal with the reality that anything we produce is going to go into that kind of work every, in every country of the world? Do we bear some culpability for the future disasters and current disasters that have come about because of these technologies that we are developing? Does that mean we need to slow down? Now, of course, on one hand, slowing down almost isn't an option because even if we slow down, there are lots of other groups that will not slow down. But then the other question then becomes, well, okay, if we can't slow down, how do we meaningfully engage to shape the future that we want to shape? Do we want to have a future where, you know, we know for a fact that, 
you know, our natural language processing, our self-autonomous vehicle work, you know, is funding weapons of war. I don't particularly want want to live in that world. I understand that we do live in that world. Um, but maybe that's a cause for us to say, okay, let's still work on this stuff. But let's also have a serious conversation of how do we how do we work with the technology that we're making to steward the future that we want to live in? Because whether or not we like it, um, and technology doesn't really give, I'm not going to say the word, but it like doesn't care about the future that we live in because the technology doesn't actually live in it in the way that we live in it, you know? And so thinking about, you know, how do we use these skills that we have, these technical skills, these deeply technical skills that we have to help us think better about the futures that we want to live. And part of that too, you know, I know, I don't think my students are guilty of this, but you know, you hear a lot of times people say things like, you know, why would you major in anything other than engineering or computer science or science? Everything else is useless. The whole world is becoming technical. I like to point out the fact that, you know, I might be in a technical department, but all of my degrees are somewhere in the social sciences and humanities realm, including my doctorate. And so, you know, I have been primed to think about how do we make the futures that we want to live in. And, you know, yes, the technology is going to make those futures for us, but it's going to be all that good thinking we do. And by the way, all those social scientists and humanities people and artists and musicians who are going to make that life worth living. And it's easy to forget that those are the people who are going to make this world we're building worth living in, you know, and so how do we incorporate those people into the technological futures that we're developing, right? Not just thinking about our own kind of culpability and ramifications of our work, but how do we bring other people in who have very different skill sets, who are going to bring a lot more richness to our lives than if they weren't around? And what does that mean for our, you know, ever increasingly technologically mediated lives? How are all these things going to change? Do we have the right to change those things? Or are we kind of stuck following the trajectory of our technology, right? Are we, are we stuck on its roller coaster or, or are we still behind the wheel? And I don't know if we have a necessarily good answer for that question at the moment. We could have a good answer for that question. Even that question, even the answer to that question does become, no, we're going to ride out the roller coaster ride that the technology is bringing us on. Doesn't mean that we can't make interventions along the way. Doesn't mean we can't like decorate the seat that we're on, right? You know, there are things we can do even in that scenario. Um, sorry, so that's not an open source problem, right? It's not a thing that open source is to blame for by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's a place that they can lead in and lead very powerfully in, um, right? By helping to extend kind of all the things that we take for granted through open source. I mean, there are lots of communities doing this too, right? So there is an open source seed project, for example, for people who are looking to kind of fight back against the Monsantos of the world and, you know, and harvest seeds that can be shared openly and freely that are not patented. To think about things like food security, how do local populations kind of hand food down from generation to generation as had been done for really the vast majority of, of human history, right? I have seen open source art. There's open source art, open source music, open source music notation. 
right? So, so these ideas are are infectious. I think they're, they're infectious partly because um, the the really novel thing about open source is that it's not novel. It's a thing. It's codifying things that humans um, will hopefully tend to do when their wants and needs are taken care of, and right, they are in a position to share freely. Um, kind of the spoils of their of their inquiries. Okay, so you know that's a, that's a lot of things. So open source can lead in in that thinking, but I think thinking, and I think that um, we need to start soon about taking that leadership position. And then finally, just to kind of wrap up that thought is, you know, that is necessarily going to mean that open source may change. You know, I don't think it's going in like, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people out there who are like, all the insert group I don't like are going to take over, you know, open source. And I think that that's just silly. Like I, I, it's silly. Like no one, no one is coming for your open source project. You know, no one is, you know, saying that, you know, you must be this to all people or else. And I think, People who think that are just being being silly, you know. But I think if we lead in thinking about our futures well, we can transform open source to be a better thing for us who are actually doing it. Um, and at the same time, kind of continue the work that open source has been doing to kind of make the world a significantly better place than it originally found it. Yeah, it's interesting you you bring up the food point when you were kind of talking about that because uh, a friend of mine, Melly Shimano, she is a lecturer at John Hopkins. And when she worked for the Baltimore school system, uh, she did a open or open source food computer program in the high schools where using Raspberry Pis and some sensors, they taught the students how to basically build a small grow garden so you could grow your own food. You know, in, in your basement, you could then have this up to be able to actually grow fresh vegetables. Um, so I definitely think that open source is definitely able to, you know, help in the challenges that we face. And even if you strip away all the other benefits, just the fact that we have the capability of fully open debate and transparency, I think is extraordinarily powerful and is sometimes kind of overlooked in the benefits of open source because we just usually focus on the code, not the fact that, mm -hmm. yeah, we can take the code and use it, but we can take this code me and 15 other people can have a conversation about how this was done and then reference other open source code that did it a different way and determine, well, which one of these ways actually is more effective or is better or accomplishes more of what we want. I also think back to the, the classic line from Jurassic Park of, you know, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And I think sometimes it's not always malicious. It's just that we don't really take the time to consider what the second and third order effects are of the one decision we're making now. Um, I know on the AI front, that's something that I kind of, I look at and I'm like, wow, this is going to be great, but this could also be really bad because it, it could go both ways. I mean, you know, Elon Musk has even come out multiple times and said, we really need to slow down and get a handle on what we're actually doing and what we're creating because we don't know where this is going. And like I said, I think it has the, the possibility to do amazingly positive things. But if that's the case, it also has the possibility to do amazingly negative things. Because for me, technology is agnostic. And I see it as, as a force multiplier for the human that happens to be utilizing it. 
And as we know, sometimes humans don't always do the best thing. Yeah. So, right. I, you know, I didn't think about the Jurassic Park line, but yes, you know, it's like a perfect encapsulation of, you know, the whole idea of slowing down. Um, yeah. So I guess for me, it is undoubtedly the case that our modern science, our modern technology has led to better lives and better lives lived for the humans that it touch or that it touches. I think that's pretty, you know, indisputable at this case, right? We're living longer. We have a better understanding about how to maintain health for longer. Not to say we don't do other things that, you know, harm our health a lot of the times, but we at least have an understanding of these things. And that understanding is getting better. And, you know, we are understanding more about, you know, lots of different facets of the natural world as well, which will then also help proliferate into technologies, which will also then help proliferate into better lives lived yeah so you know i don't know if i want to go on record publicly ever saying that i agree with elon musk i'd like to keep keep that in the shadows um but you know i do think it's worthwhile to sit back maybe not stop but slow down a little bit and think about you know what is ai and what is ai going to do for it right you know I don't know if everybody has read Asimov, but, you know, at least enough of us are familiar with, you know, the three laws of robotics, right, which is, you know, kind of, you know, a very early underpinning of, of what would become AI today. Um, it's also kind of important to realize that um, AI itself has always kind of ebbed and flowed, right? So what we actually have today is more like the third kind of rising crest of, of AI development. Um, so if you go back, if you rewind back to like the 60s with like the rise of the list machines and like that first kind of wave of AI, and then you have like the mid 80s ish, um, particularly between the US and Japan, um, that kind of rise of AI. Now we have the current AI, um, but it's that kind of middle section that always kind of fascinates me, that kind of AI in, in the 1980s. And there's this great book um, by a woman who is unfortunately no longer with us named Diana Forsythe. The book is titled, um, uh, let me think if I can remember the title of the book. Uh, nope, that's that's the wrong book. No, Studying Those Who Study Us. That's the name of the book. Studying Those Who Study Us. And so she was an anthropologist and she actually ended up hanging out for a few years in um, biomedical AI labs in the 80s. And people who were designing computers that would either help doctors do diagnoses or actually just do the diagnoses themselves and you know one of the really interesting things in the book is she spends like the first i don't know like third maybe 40 percent of the book kind of documenting what all these ai workers are doing as they build the machines they test the machines and you know they kind of calibrate the machines to do the work that they want to do then the like last 60 percent or so of the book is her coming to the realization that the AI people don't value the work that she does and think that what she does is easy. And they end up going off and like winning grants to do ethnographies of themselves as they end up, as they continue to develop um, like this AI system. Now, of course the AI system, like I don't think it's with us anymore. Like I think it's one of the ones that ended up petering out um, kind of in the, in the Valley of the second AI Valley. Um, right. This, that's a really like capturing moment of, you know, not only are we not going to slow down, the one person who 
could help us slow down. We don't think what she does is particularly difficult, and we think we can do it ourselves. And in fact, we're going to go win money that she would otherwise be vying for to like do this thing that she does, knowing, well, I don't think that if they knew, but in hindsight, we know full well that they could not do it as well as she could, right? And could not produce the kinds of ethnographies of, you know, AI workers in that era as she could of them. And so like, it's a like really fascinating moment too of, you know, maybe part of it too is opening ourselves up to people who might force us to slow down a little, even if we don't want that. Like, even if like our knee jerk reaction is no, we can't, we can't have that, you know, think about maybe ways that we can. And, and, you know, there are people out there who have kind of did good work along that line. Biela Coleman is one who kind of immediately comes to mind. You know, she's the one who wrote the ethnography on the Debian project. She's also the one who wrote the book on Anonymous. Um, The Debian book is Coding Freedom. The Anonymous book is Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy. Um, There are other good people like Lawrence Lessig, um, the law professor, right, whose uh, book on code um, and Code V2, I guess, is the the updated version, right? Just kind of like helping us slow down. Yes, thinking about how code, right, is law, as it says in the book, but also, right, thinking about how we can use his insights to, to maybe slow down just a little bit, just to give us enough time to do a little bit of self-reflection on the, you know, on the off chance that we feel like we need that self-reflection. Um, so, yeah, so I, th- I think for me, you know, technology is going to be what we put into it. And it's also going to be how we react to what comes out of it. You know, I think, you know, we're on both sides of the equation, you know, unless, unless we start developing robots that build themselves and computer programs that code themselves and even then right it still started with our input somewhere right you know there's that classic garbage in garbage out saying and you know sometimes i think you know maybe just maybe um we owe it to ourselves just to take a moment to make sure that we're not putting garbage in not saying that we do a lot of times we don't um but it never hurts to be sure and that way we can be a little bit more sure about what comes out. And that way we can make good decisions about what comes out. Right. And, you know, and that's the thing, too. And I say that a lot to my students, right? particularly in the SSCP class, because it comes up a lot on the exam. Right. We, we have all this data. We do all this work so that we can make good decisions with it. You know, the reason that we have this technology, the reason that we have these longer lives with better health, with more enjoyment in life is because, you know, not just we made these machines, but we were able to make good decisions about the data that came out of these machines. And we'll continue to make good choices, I hope. Um, but it never hurts just to be, you know, 100% sure that the input we're putting in is going to ha- be good. And that way the output can be also good. And then we can make those good decisions about it. You know, now like I think of fa- Facebook when I think of like the classic garbage in thing, right? You know, in a mad rush to you know, monetize all of our personal information, what kind of decisions do we have available to us to make? And right, you know, everybody points to to Facebook these days as like the, you know, progenitor of fake news. Of course, they were not the first ones to make fake news. They're not going to be the last ones to make fake news. But the way that they chose to make their input had a permanent impact on our relationship to fake news. Right. And so that's an example of what would have happened if they slowed down and said, do we really want to do this? Maybe there's another way 
to make the money we want to make. And I don't, you know, I don't fault them for making money, but I fault them for making bad decisions that led to bad input that led to future bad decisions and bad decisions that not only they made, but other people end up making, right? You know, it's, you know, it's easy that like Facebook makes bad decisions, but also like people end up making bad decisions in their day-to-day lives because of the fake news. Uh, right. And so what kind of future would we be living in now if they took five minutes to say, do we really want to do this? Is there another way to, to make the money we want to make? And not be doing these things that we're going to end up doing. And of course, none of us have the answer to that question, right? That That's a, a future that does not exist. Um, but it might be a lesson to think about the next time we are presented with such a question, what kind of input are we going to put into our machine? Yeah, I can definitely appreciate the, the story that you mentioned about the anthropologist, because a major peeve of mine is tech people thinking they can do everything better than every other industry and that they can just go in and disrupt the industry and ignore all the lessons from the past because they're tech people and they can do it better. That is one thing that just drives me batty. On one hand, you gotta love their enthusiasm though, right? But so the question becomes, how do we temper that enthusiasm with the actual good inputs that they need to get good outputs? And who do they need to to work with? Yeah, the enthusiasm's great, the motivation's great, the drive is great, just, just hold on, take a moment and think, is there anything that this industry may have learned over the past 50, 100, 200 years that I might want to know first before I go in to disrupt everything? Um, and as right. far as you going on the record and, you know, that you agree with Elon about something, don't worry, your secret is safe with me. I won't tell anyone. <laughs> Thank you. So to wrap this up, it, what would you say are some major things that you've learned in your career? that you would want to pass on as advice to other people who are just now starting out their career in tech? Yeah. If only I had a, if only I had a 40 year career in tech to, uh, to pull from. No, I'm kidding. But, um, the biggest thing that I had to learn was to forgive myself for my own mistakes and giving myself permission to, to say, Hey, on a mailing list, I have a question. I don't know this thing. I will try as hard as I can to learn this thing. But I'll learn it. So learning to kind of, you know, permit myself the mistakes, forgive myself for for the mistakes that I'm going to make along the way, right? Because who here has ever coded perfect code every single moment of their lives? Nobody. <laughs> so you know, that's not it's not a reality. Um, the other thing that that I, I guess, is what I would teach myself, but I guess perhaps it would be useful for other people as well, um, is to not forget both the value of empathy and the value of the the other person's humanity at the other side of the table from you. In my experience, um, it can maybe sometimes be easy to forget that there's a person on the other side of the mailing list. Not saying that, that, you know, I would ever go out and attack people, but I am sure that in my 20s, if you wanted to go back and find mailing list posts for me, that would probably embarrass me today because I said some stupid things. I'm sure you could do it. I'm sure it's still all in the public record somewhere on those mailing lists. I don't know if I'd be embarrassed so much about them um, today, 
you know, because I, I've learned to, you know, give myself the, the forgiveness for my mistakes on that front. But, um, you know, empathy for the other person, the other side of the screen. And the reason for that is not necessarily because, you know, you should treat people well, but I guess you should treat people well. But because a lot of us end up going on to either directly or indirectly teach people. Even if you don't become a professor, you end up teaching somebody something along the way. And it can be easy to forget that you too once didn't know it. And the thing that seems really obvious to you is not obvious to the other person, which is exactly why they're asking you about that thing. Because if it was obvious to them, they wouldn't ask about it. Um, right. And so, you know, remembering, you know, that that other person is a person and, and, and being empathetic towards kind of where they are now. Now, that doesn't mean you need to bend over backwards and like drop everything you're doing to help somebody at the drop of a hat. Um, but maybe it means saying, I can't help it this time. But why don't you go ask this other person? Maybe they have time. Or why don't you email me back a week from now? And I'll bet, I bet I'll have more time then. Or, right, or here's, you know, some article somewhere that I don't know if it totally answered your question, but might have some links for you to, to kind of find the answer to your question that I think might be helpful. Um, you know, and I, I think too about, you know, my students a lot when I think about kind of advice I would give myself is, you know, what, what things would I want out of my professors if I had to go back to college in 2021, which thank God I do not. Um, but if I did, right, what, what things would I want from myself? And I teach with the answers to those questions in mind. What would I want from myself? I was the one sitting in the room right now. And that's not to say I'm perfect at it, because I sure as hell ain't perfect at it. Um, but I like to think I get better at least a little bit every day. Um, you know, I'm not going to hit a home run uh, teaching every day. Um, but I think, you know, we can all, you know, be well to, to remember that. You know, there are people on the other side of the mailing list or the screen or, or what have you. You know, think about what you would have needed when you were in their shoes. And who gave those things to you? And why did they give those things to you? And you don't have to be perfect at it. You don't have to drop, you know, at a hat, you know, the drop of a, a hat to help. But, you know, the way you interact with that person will affect the way they interact with you and whatever it is you're doing going forward. You know, for my students, they kind of have to deal with me going forward for, you know, at least a semester, if not a whole year, if not, you know, I've had some students who have taken like five classes with me. Like they've spent a pretty significant time with me in the classroom, right? And I want them to want to keep coming back to the classroom. I think one, that's one thing that I actually kind of pride myself on is how many return students I get after they no longer have to take my class. Even those who are not InfoSec students, I get a lot of them who will come back and take classes with me, which is a pretty good sign that I'm, I'm remembering that you know, their humanity, where they are in life, and helping them move forward. And, you know, the world can always use a little bit more of that. Always a little bit more. So let's do that thing. I like that thing. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, Brian, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. Yes, I've had a good time as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I look forward to the next time we can talk. Hopefully, It'll be at a BSD conference some point in the future. Fingers crossed. I'm really looking forward to those being back in person. Well, thanks again, Brian. Have a great night. Thanks, you too.